0: You've tuned in to a special edition of The Roundtable Podcast, 20 More Minutes with Mike Cole. Hello, literary alchemists. I'm Dave Robison.
1: And I'm Brian Humphrey.
0: And you're listening to a special episode of The Roundtable Podcast, 20 Minutes
1: With. Twenty Minutes with is uh, an opportunity where Dave and I get to sit down and talk to somebody that we have uh, buku respect for, and um, this particular week we're bringing somebody back who is one of my personal favorites. And uh, Dave, tell us all about it.
0: Oh, it's pure badassery. Uh, uh, I got to tell you, Brian. I think there's a basic human instinct in in all of us to try and like pigeonhole people, you know, Mm -hmm. trying trying to fit them into a nice tidy box. And while this is almost always a disservice to the rich complexity of the human spirit, in the case of our guest host, there simply aren't enough boxes. All right? Now, you and I, Brian, (laughs) we caught a glimpse of his many facets the last time he was on the show back in June. Oh, yes. Uh, Now, since then, I have had the pleasure of shaking this guy's hand and attending several of his panels. And I can tell you this. After spending five minutes with this gentleman, you get the distinct impression that you are not speaking to just an author or a nerd or a soldier. I mean, he's certainly all of those things, but he is not defined exclusively by any of them. So so who is this guy? Well, I have, I have some possible answers here. Uh, I can tell you that he's a guy whose father, while smoking his pipe and peering over the New York Times review of books told him that his family was apparently genetically predisposed to suck at math and that the (laughs) world of letters was where his destiny lay. Uh, He's also a man for whom history has been a passion ever since his mother showed him the arms and armor gallery at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, so much so that he got his undergraduate degree in history and he even worked at the Tower of London, Brian, for a summer in their arms and armor collection. That's awesome. That is awesome. Yeah. Uh, uh, the first fantasy novel he ever read was Lloyd Alexander's The Book of Three, which he picked up because the cover looked cool. And from there, he moved on to Tolkien and Terry Brooks and others, as well as cultivating a healthy comic book addiction. Now, the first book, and I do hope you can hear the air quotes in that, he wrote, was actually a transcription of Ralph Bakshi's Lord of the Rings animated film. And when his older brother brought home the old D&D basic set, he pretty much drank the Kool-Aid and surrendered to his nerdy impulses. Now, fortunately, he had several friends who were similarly afflicted, including a young Peter V. Brett. Now, these two rascals would eventually go on to become roommates at college and inspire each other in their pursuits of literary greatness. Now, it was years later, while our guest host was working in the Pentagon, that he was struck by the idea for what would one day become his first truly published novel— Now, during the many years and many drafts of story development, uh, our guest host sought guidance from many sources, including Joshua Bilmes, who would eventually become not only a good friend, but also his literary agent. Now, the wild thing is, is that woven among all of these adventures... There has been a whole spectrum of life experiences. As a security contractor, government civilian, and military officer, our guest host's career has run the gamut from counterterrorism to cyber warfare to federal law enforcement. He's done three tours in Iraq and was recalled to serve during the Deepwater Horizon oil spill and Hurricane Irene. Now, some intriguing random facts that we unearthed. His grandmother modeled fur coats in the 30s. His favorite birthday cake is the Baskin and Robbins fudge crunch cake. (laughs) Pay no attention, dear fans. Uh, he used to be a competitive sword fighter in both Kendo and the SCA, two very different sword styles there. Uh, his favorite D&D character was a paladin. And according to a blog post on Shiloh Walker's website, he will someday write sexy romance novels. He's also the author of (laughs) Shadow Ops Control Point and the forthcoming sequel, Shadow Ops Fortress Frontier, available at the end of January, just a week away from Ace Books. Who is he, ladies and gentlemen? Let me tell you, he's the guy you want at your back and by your side, whether it's the zombie apocalypse or drinks on Friday night. And he's the guy on the Skype line right now. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome back to the big chair at the round table, Mike cole mike dude thank you so much for coming
2: back and joining us at the round table man wow you know i don't i don't even want to do a podcast i just want to sit there and listen to you talk about that That was uh (laughs) that's possibly the biggest ego boost i've ever had that's uh and the the amount of research that went into that wow well done
0: was was it all straight up did did i miss
2: anything or was anything wrong a thousand percent right with the one exception that while well, Peter Brett and I were friends in college, we were not roommates. Ah,
0: okay. Well see the assumption was there. But that that's still cool. Yeah, I will make a that's note just, for, that's for just future heralding addressing. purposes. <laughs> so all right. well, all right, let's get into this, man. We've got 20 minutes with you. I don't want to waste it. So I'm just gonna sure. set our timer here and let's get into it. Um and first and
2: foremost, I gotta ask. Sexy romance novels? Really? <laughs> yeah, really. No, I mean it. And and the thing that gets me about it is, uh, and I'll try to distill the story down, is uh, I went to meet a friend at the uh, Romance Writers of America conference when it was held in Times Square in New York City a couple of years back. And uh, I come up the escalator, and there are no men. And I, and I mean it. There were no men at all. And so when we're out, I'm, I'm meeting her for lunch, and she writes category romances, and I say... Why are there no, I mean, don't men, look, all of these category romances have these, you know, muscular men on the covers. You know, where's our vote? You know, where, you know, aren't we writing these books? Aren't we having some hand in describing ourselves? And uh, she goes, well, no. Um, (laughs) There are some men who write category romances, but they have to write them under female pen names. And and here's where I'll avail myself of your uh, profanity, uh, liberal profanity policy on the show. Fuck that. Uh, (laughs) Right on. I mean, Andre Norton um, and uh, C.S. Friedman and um, uh, even, heck, Robin Hobb, I think, all chose deliberate gender-neutral names because back when they were starting out writing fantasy and science fiction, it wasn't acceptable for a woman to do it. So, And, and when I've talked to people in, in, in romance publishing about that gender barrier, they all say, well, that's just the way the market works, and to which my response is bullshit, You know, because you haven't tried it the other way. And uh, I think that some, someone who is very clearly identifiable as a man should write romance. And we do. Look, one half of a heterosexual romance is a guy, right? Well, yeah. So, and we have thoughts about that. We fall in love. We have sex. We, uh, you know, we, we, we want all flowers. flowers.
0: We do candy. We do it. Brian. Yeah. Holy crap. Mike, Brian Humphrey's proposal to his wife is a romance novel in and of <laughs> itself. Holy crap. That sounds
1: oh, awesome.
2: Yeah. That sounds fantastic.
1: It was, it was pretty involved, pretty intense. Do you, do you have it on video? No, no. It, it was a, uh, totally like a, a two-day affair. Yeah, <laughs> It was crazy. Wow. wow.
2: Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, so you know what I'm talking about. Uh, sure. And so, and so, look, I mean, I have a lot of learning to do before I can write romance good enough to sell it. But uh, absolutely, I want to be the guy who breaks that gap and who writes it under his own name with a big honkin' author photo in the back. You know, maybe I'll even grow a beard for the occasion, so there can be no mistake.
0: <laughs> Get a big hairy chest rock in there. Go do do
2: that whole thing. Do the Tom Selleck, uh, Burt Reynolds. Uh, yes, 70s sort of thing. yes, <laughs> awesome.
0: So, so now is this a crusade, or do you, you no, know, Mike? Do you
2: want to write romance novels? Well, I, I want to be a versatile writer. I mean, the fact is, is that. Um, I, uh, The Princess Bride is a wonderful romance that mm-hmm. uh, I loved. Um, when Harry Met Sally is a, a favorite chick flick movie of mine. Um, I love great romance stories, and I don't think I'm the only man who feels that way. And I think that one of the things that makes romance so great is that um, they really are, at the heart of the story, character-heavy in a way that some science fiction and fantasy novels aren't. And uh, I think that, that great character stories are frankly, great stories. And I think that because it's people that are at the heart of what makes a story tick. And so I think that it would be a a real fantastic challenge for me to write something like that. And I, and if I could pull it off, I think that that would be the way I would know that I had arrived as a writer.
1: There you go. Awesome. Okay. I've got a question and you got to kind of, you got to kind of bear with me for Mm -hmm. a second because I have to do this through an analogy. one of my experiences with a lot of math teachers that I've worked with is that they have major difficulty understanding why their students just don't get it. Um, there's, they're so immersed in their own terminology and they're so comfortable with their own formulas that the students kind of get buried. And one of the things that you do really well is bring in your, your vast technical knowledge. How do you do that? Or, or do you have a process to make sure, like through beta readers or something, that you're not burying your readers with procedural aspects details. so they don't feel like they have to run out and, and buy a manual just to figure out what's going on? You know what I mean?
2: Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. And the, the answer is I don't. Um, the answer, this is one of the reasons why if you read the acknowledgments in my book, I always say that a novel is a Herculean – or is it Herculean? Someone help me here. Herculean. Thank you, yeah. a Herculean group effort that involves dozens, if not scores of people, and one person gets to put their name on it. The fact is, is that when I first wrote Control Point, I did bury it in military jargon, and I did overuse acronyms, and I did make assumptions about the reader's understanding of, of the minutia of military technology and military culture, and it took uh, both Peter V. Brett as a beta reader and uh, Joshua Bilmes as my agent beating the crap out of me to get me to take <laughs> it out. Um, I mean, it was, it was ridiculous. I, uh, and you um, still
0: have a glossary at the end of control point.
2: Well, and it's funny, it's funny because, uh, one of the things I did initially when I, when I submitted the manuscript to Penguin was the glossary was up front and Penguin was like, no, 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 you know, glossaries go in the back. So it wound up in the back. And then I had a lot of people saying, I couldn't fill out, figure out the military jargon. And I was like, well, there was a glossary. And they were like, how are we supposed to know? It was in the back. <laughs> so Fortress Frontier has a front and center prominent note that says uh, there's a glossary in the back of this book. So hopefully that'll, uh, that'll nice. help uh, defang it. So
0: sure. basically just get as many people as possible to read it so that you can detect those and get them out uh, or at least
2: shoveled into the glossary. Well, no. More importantly, it, it goes back to Stephen King's um, old salt, which I'm sure all of your listeners know, which is kill your darlings. And I, he, you know, he meant it as being willing to throw away manuscripts or pieces of manuscripts that are important to you. But it also, it, it's the broader thing. In the end, the story has to serve itself. The story, your job as a writer is to produce a fun, engaging, entertaining, transporting story. It is not to show off how smart you are. It is not to show, and it is also not to prove how authentic your life experience is and how authentic your manuscript can be to that experience. In the end, drama trumps all. And part of being a professional, and there's another great quote I could add in here, Aristotle said that uh, law is reason without passion. Uh, Which is, that quote was actually made famous by Legally Blonde, not by any Aristotle (laughs) ever, because Rich Witherspoon quotes it in the the show. But um, it's true. And writing is the same way. Uh, You have to be able to be dispassionate enough about what you're producing to be able to look at it critically and say, hey, you know, yeah, these acronyms are realistic. Yes, this is, you know, it's important to understand the mechanism of this carbine but in the end, that's going to detract from the drama and the pacing of the story, so it has to go. And the truth is I wasn't able to do it because I wasn't good enough on Control Point. I think I've matured and improved with Fortress Frontier, and there was less of that from Joshua and Ann Sowards, my editor at um, Ace, and from uh, from beta readers like, like Peter, but uh, there was still a little. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, and that's a real paradox because, I mean, on the one hand, you have to be passionate about the story that you're telling and you got to be fully invested in it. And yet, as you say, at some point, you know, it's, you know, write drunk and and edit sober. Uh, You you have to pull back and, and have that dispassion and and be able to do that. And like, as you say, that's a learned, that's a learned skill.
1: It really is. So I, the, the other aspect of that, that I wanted to ask you is, would you say that because you, you do go back and you pull a lot of it out that because it's for more of a general audience that the, the dialogue may be a little less authentic?
2: Huh. Um, yeah, but not a whole lot less. Uh, right.
1: Well, not, not in a detrimental way, but that that's not necessarily exactly how. They no, would, no, no, look, If, we, got, kind of if, if we suddenly got
0: embedded with, with Oscar Britton's, uh, 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 unit, uh, uh, we would probably hear a very different set of banter right. than what appears in the
2: book. Well, I mean, this this is interesting. Uh, the the answer is let me let me rephrase your question uh, to make it easier sure. on myself.
0: <laughs> Instead of answering
2: the question that Please you asked. I'm gonna, answer, I'm gonna answer the question I wanted to ask. Yeah, he's an um, editor, a
0: natural born editor. Holy crap! That's right. And
2: that is how um, how close is the dialogue that you're reading in a Shadow Ops book to the kind of chatter you'll you'll hear, let's say, on a radio system um, on one of the Coast Guard boats that I'm on? And the and the answer is not not too close at all. But that has less to do with me having to pull stuff out, and it has more to do with reader expectations. This is the thing that I keep running into. People come to military books with a certain set of expectations, and when and they really want a particular um, feeling from the story. The same way I think a reader of noir novels or The Maltese Falcon or whatever would want from the voice of their detective. And I wish I could sit down with Jim Butcher and ask him if he had a similar uh, challenge when he wrote. So I actually I actually had to dial back the reality in some of the dialogue because it just didn't right. sound military enough. I mean, the truth is, is that half the time, you know, guys are on the radio acting like idiots or, or you know, not sounding military at all. And they get on there and they forget their, you know, their code words. And they go, Hey John, I, I mean, uh, you know, I mean, that's, um, people Black are still Hawk. people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah got yeah. It, Right. People are still people. But, um, when you're writing a sort of hard bitten military story, you could do that once in a while to put a feeling of authenticity into it. But, but you, your readers are coming to your story with an expectation of, um, of a real sort of military feel and, and you have to deliver on that to somewhat. So, so in some cases I think I actually over rather than, uh, rather than, and that wasn't because of anything that Joshua or any other, uh, editor or beta reader gave to me. It was, uh, I guess, my own sort of instinct for, again, as I said before, story above all else. Right. Goes back to the drama. Right. Absolutely.
1: Right. Yeah. And that makes a lot of sense. I th- the, the reason that I bring it up is I think a lot of writers struggle with, you know, if, if I have not been a police officer and I want to write a police procedural, I might go overboard with some of the dialogue thinking that I'm putting in, you know, I'm being technical and I'm I'm making them sound like cops when really cops are, you know, they don't always sound super technical.
2: <laughs> oh, and, and actually, this is another thing I, I want us to riff off of your statement, Brian, is, is I get a lot sure. of people asking me and saying to me, because in the Coast Guard, I, I, we are both law enforcement and military. So I'm right. both, a, a, both a cop and a warfighter. And, a war fighter. and um, we get people saying all the time, well, can you write authentically about a cop if, you're, if, you, if you don't have experience being one and the same for a warfighter? And to which my response is no, um, you can write it. There is no uh, monopoly that people who have an experience have over that experience. Any smart person who can observe? Who can listen? I think can paint a realistic portrait of what it's like. Um, and I don't like this idea that that uh, it's something that only by having the experience I could ever understand. I just don't feel it's true.
0: Yeah, yeah, we agree.
2: Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Mike, I,
0: I and, and thank God for that. Yeah, exactly.
1: I'm, I'm happy yeah, exactly. with the job that I have. <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> well, thank God, every writer. I mean, holy smokes! Yeah. None of us, most of us, haven't hefted a sword or slain a dragon. <laughs> there uh, you go. Uh, so right. <laughs> So absolutely, we'll be back with more of our conversation with Mike Cole after this brief promotional break.
1: So. This Dave Robison guy here at the Roundtable podcast, he says that you find what you're looking for, right? But I promise you, none of us were looking for enormous Thulean death spheres to fall out of the sky that morning that came to be known as the invasion. When they wiped out more than half of the world's metahuman population, Echo had to find heroes to fill the ranks to help save the world. And it's not easy. For us to save the world, We've got to first save ourselves. The Secret World Chronicle, a podcast novel series written by Mercedes Lackey, Dennis Lee, Cody Martin, and Veronica Jaguerre. Narrated and produced by Veronica Jaguerre. Available at iTunes, audiobooks, and at www.secretworldchronicle.com.
0: Now, let's get back to the conversation with Mike Cole. Mike, I, I discovered uh, uh, while my minions were out gathering all of that delicious information about you, um, <laughs> that uh, actually I don't have minions. It was me, um, we, uh, which is my mild, only mildly
2: creepy. But, but uh, that's, that's right. The, the, the result was more than worth it. That's
0: what Lauren Lauren Buca said. Uh, you you've really crested into stalkerish zones there, and it's like, ooh, yeah, that is kind of creepy. But you know, it's out there on the web. Sure. But um, I learned that after Control Point, you had actually written two other books uh, an Eastern European fantasy called Cloud Sower and a Mongol North African fantasy called The T Road. Now, I understand those have been trunked, uh, uh, but. Do you have plans on revisiting those? I mean, I can only imagine the amount of work and passion and, and desire that was invested into those stories. Are those trunked forever, or, or do you have a desire to go back to those?
2: No, I, I, uh, those are trunked forever. And as a matter of fact, I just published, and, and I, I just, my last blog post, if people go to my blog at, at uh, www.mikecole.com, Mike with a Y, uh, and go to the uh, comms tab at the top, you can see my blog post, and I published the prologue, from Cloud Sower. Um And it is awful. And you can see. Uh, exactly what was wrong. With my writing at the time. And I intend to do another blog post. Where I'm going to publish uh, the prologue. And or the first chapter of T-Road. So people can see. You know these were the the practice runs. I had to do to get my chops. To a place where I could eventually write. Latent the book that became. Um, Control Point. Once you attach your name. To something that sucks. You uh, you and then attempt to ask for money for it, present it as a product that people should be paying for. You're, 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 it's your reputation that you're putting on the line. And people, once they read, your' something with your name on it and it stinks, um, they're not going to come back to you. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm just not willing to, to compromise my reputation. Okay. I have books under contract, and I certainly have to deliver on those books. Um, and I will absolutely meet my deadlines, but if I really felt like I was coming up against a cliff and the book just wasn't good, I would I would be calling up my editor saying, like, I need more time. You know, this book isn't where it needs to be. In the end, uh, those two novels are just not, they're not fixable, and uh, I challenge readers, or rather invite readers, go on my blog, read what I've written there, and if you really feel that that's something that could be turned around, tell me how you would do it, because I, I look at that and frankly other people in the business look have looked at that and say yeah this is there's just uh, no hope for this
0: challenge accepted
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, i want to i want to riff on this just a little bit mike because it does sure. really speak to that that first million words and and you know artistic integrity as you say but also the ability to to you know as you say kill your darlings and put those aside i i would put to you and and i'm speaking completely out of my ass cuz i did not read latent which was the very first draft of Control Point when it came out in 98, uh, and you started shopping it around. But I would bet that didn't suck as bad, maybe, as Cloud Sower or T-Road, but I'll bet it sucked, didn't it? Sure.
2: Suck? So what's the difference but, I between latent and and these guys? I mean, uh, look, I don't know, how do I say this? And it's funny, because <laughs> I've read also early books that Peter Peter V. Brett is a, a dear friend of mine and and a... And a fantastic fantastic writer um, and a, a sort of a, he's very very um, well acclaimed and deservedly so in the field and I've read early books his trunk novels because we read each other's writing when we were in college and after sure and he's got a couple there that I think are fantastic and that could be fixed and he looks at them and says no these are these are just not there I'm sure if I were to go back through the original manuscript of latent where i call hydromancers aquamancers (laughs) (laughs) not my most most shining moment yeah that wasn't at (laughs) all but i mean i'm sure i'll find moments of in there which i really feel are up to par and i'm sure the same is true in both cloud star and t road but in the end um look in the end when you're producing work for market, it it, it can't just be good. It's got to be amazing. Um, it's got to be, you got to be going out there with something that you're confident is better than everything else. It's that competitive and, uh, good enough is not good enough. You got to produce something that's scintillating and, you know, a couple of bright moments and some promise in a, in an okay manuscript, that's just that's just not the standard for professional publication you've gotta it's gotta like you know turn the table you put it on to gold okay and uh so so yeah i mean those will never do that
0: okay all right interesting that, fair well, enough
1: I wanted to kind of take that a step further because earlier in in this interview you mentioned that your soon to be released book is is better than control point you've, you've grown, way back, you know way back. as as a writer and so you know how do you how do you make that determination at what point it is ready to be released because i think that even you know 10 years from now you'll be saying the same thing about this this new one that's coming Good out point.
2: Yeah, no, it's you know funny. what i mean yeah I, I well i hope so i mean this and it's fun, it's and it's a funny experience too because this third book has been killing me it's been really really hard um the second book was a lot and, and granted maybe this is hindsight is 20 you know maybe i'm I'm uh, looking back fondly, and it was harder than I think. But it seemed to me that, that Fortress Frontier was easier. Um, the answer is is that I don't know. Um, with Control Point, uh, I thought it sucked. And the only reason that I even gave it to Joshua was that I was going to Iraq on my third tour. And I thought, well, shit, I could die. So I might as well give it to him. And he, it was the book that took me over the line. And uh, I, I swear to God, if I hadn't been going to Iraq, I, I, I would have been like, nah, it's not ready. and not giving it to him. It took you know, I guess my level of confidence was so low that it took, I needed someone with 20 years experience picking winning horses in this field to turn to me and say, I believe in you. And, um, I still kind of need that. Now, uh, Pete, uh, is very different. Pete, uh, he, he, don't get me wrong. He still solicits feedback and he gets edits and, but I, I he's sort of more, um, more able to judge his own work has been mm-hmm. my experience. Um, and I've gotten better about that, um, but I'm, I'm still at the point where I have trusted people that I, re- I rely on to get feedback from. Um, and one of the great things about being represented by Joshua is just that he, he's a very activist agent, and he's very involved in editing manuscripts, which a lot of agents aren't. And he just, look, this is the guy who represents Brandon Sanderson and Charlene Harris and Peter B. Brett and Elizabeth Moon and Simon Green and on and on and on. If, there's, if it can be said that there's a person in the in the world who knows what's good in science fiction and fantasy, it's him. So when he looks at my manuscript and says, this is something I'm confident putting my name on and taking it to a publisher, that's sort of how I know. Right. Yeah. And, and, and you know what? That's a lame answer because not all of your listeners have that advantage. Um, well, you know, well, it-
0: but, but some of us have have the exact opposite. We have we have the, the blind arrogance of thinking our work is frickin gold uh, and goes up there. I mean, there's there's a middle line to be there's there's a line to be drawn. There's experience that will inform those value judgments and those evaluations uh, uh, with time, with reading and with the objectivity that we spoke about earlier of looking at your work uh, uh, through the eye
2: of uh, a skilled storyteller. I will say this, I will say this, and this maybe will be of comfort to your listeners, and that is that I have not talked to a single writer who I admire. And we're talking Joe Abercrombie, Scott Lynch, Pat Roths, Peter Brett, um, Jim Hines, who has not said to me at one point, Man, I don't know what I'm doing. I, I, I I'm you know, I I just I sit down, I type, you know, I, I you know and I think that's a general sentiment among yeah. among among writers, in the end, we're all sort of just stabbing in the dark here, and and some of us fail successfully.
0: Yeah, and that sure. and that
2: that is sure. a comfort,
0: I think, to 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 everybody to to realize that these people that we admire so much are are feel just as as not necessarily uncertain, but like I don't know what I'm doing. Uh, right. It comes out <laughs> good, uh, but uh, you know,
1: yeah. But I think that I think the defining factor or the the common denominator in all of this is that. All of those people and you, Mike, regardless of the reason, you put it out there.
2: Yes. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Um, You know, I mean, yeah, I mean, but I mean, look, in the end, when you when you boil this down, this is the thing I've wanted to do all my life. It really is. I mean, there's there have been a lot I have seesawed all over the place. I have had literally six different careers I have, I have, uh, you know, my, my my friends once joked that uh, one life is not enough for you um, because I just keep running all over the place. But, um, right. but this is the thing that's been consistent. I have, from my earliest days, wanted to be a fantasy novelist. And I think that, that that really has helped me get it out there. It was really funny. Brandon Sanderson, I saw him speaking at Comic-Con, and he was talking about writers who quit their day jobs and go full-time. And um, and how they find the time when they're working at a day job until their writing get reaches the point where they can make enough money. And he said, you know, you got to want it more than the video games. And uh, man, did that did that ring <laughs> home? You yeah. know,
0: well, yeah. it's the video games, it's the television, it's you know, how much time with the family do you yeah want yeah I mean, yeah all
2: of that. yeah? I mean, the video games is sort of an easy easy thing to give up, right? I mean, but, but you know, what if he had said, you got to want it more than you want to snuggle with your girlfriend. You got to want it more than you want to play with your kid. You know, I mean, that's a horrible, horrible thing to say, which is, I think, why people don't say it. But there's, there's some truth to that. Yeah, yeah. And, right. and
0: nobody's saying you have to, you have to quit your girlfriend or, or have your child grow up an orphan. But, <laughs> but you, but you do have to say, okay, I could snuggle with my girlfriend for another hour, or I could get in a thousand words. You know, yeah, you know, I was talking to
2: Peter Arulian. He's the author of The Unremembered, as um, a, a real epic, uh, gigantic book from Tor. And I know he's got a sequel coming out soon. When he was up here. And and he works a full-time, extremely demanding job in technology um, and has a wife, and I, I may be wrong here, but two children. And I think he has an hour commute in each direction. And uh, I was like, man, how do you make it work? Because this guy writes phone books. I mean, I write <laughs> these slim mass market books. He's writing the, the big, big doorstop epic fantasies. Um, and he's, he doesn't sleep. He sleeps, you know, four hours a night. And I'm, I'm like, my God, isn't that horrible? He goes, yeah, it's absolutely horrible. You know, he's not a person who doesn't need sleep. He needs sleep. He just goes without it because that's what he has to do to make all the things in his life he wants to have happen, happen. Right. And uh, there's really something to that.
0: Yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah. Um, and and gentlemen, I, I knew this would happen, but uh, you know, <laughs> goblins have overrun my uh, my desk and and carted off the 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 timer, which mm. means sadly that we are out of time. All right, well. yes. Either that or they were it was portal mancied out. I'm not sure which. But regardless, <laughs> it's gone. So
2: Mike, bottom line is I talk too much.
0: <laughs> no, no. It, it, the bottom line is you haven't spoken enough, but the timer must must force us to, sure. to close. Well,
2: thank you so much for uh, letting me ramble. It's always always a lot of fun oh dude always always yes
0: thank you so much for coming back and for sharing that was that was fabulous yeah man anytime brian what do you what are you taking away from this one man
1: Oh God, just that, um, you have to get serious about it. And, you know, there's, there's so many things that stand in the way if you let them. And I think it's not just self-esteem or, you know, looking at your own piece and going, well, I don't know if it's good enough. Um, you know, it, it also, it it just, that's, that's the main thing for me is that you have to just, um, you know, have people that you trust and, and figure out what your good enough is going to be and meet that and get it out there. Yeah.
0: Yeah, especially you with with new baby son in the world. I mean, there was, yeah. you know, the choices you're you're confronting every day. Yeah, no kidding. For me, I, I wish I, I could have said that I had read Mike's blog, which is why I asked the question about Cloud Sower and T Road. But that was just pure lucky serendipity. Um, <laughs> but but what I'm taking from this is I'm so looking forward to reading that blog now because I'm gonna go and I'm gonna totally. go fix T Road. What, what, <laughs> what is it? Was it Cloud Sower? Is that the is that
2: the Cloud prologue? Sower's prologue is up on the blog, and I. I'm going to put up T roads in.
0: I'm so fixing that. And and <laughs> then you and I are going to write it together and we'll be buds <laughs> and we'll hang out and it'll be awesome.
1: All right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and be, before we close this off, I just have to tell you, Mike, that, you know, I, I was reading, um, control point and like five other things for school and other things that I'm doing all at the same time. As soon as I got to Skilla, I, I put everything else down. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. Yeah.
2: Cool. And actually it's funny. I, uh, it's Scylla, actually. I, uh, uh, Larry Ronstadt, uh, Rostadt, yeah, who's my, my British, uh, UK cover, he put a model on Facebook. It had nothing to do with me. It just happened to be a model, and it's Scylla. Uh, I mean, it's, he nice. was doing it for another book, and I, uh, I linked to it. So if you go on Larry Rostant's Facebook page and you drill through his pictures, you, you'll know when you see her because it's, <laughs> it's, it's the woman sure. from the book. It's, well, it's on That's your awesome. Facebook
0: page, too, right?
2: Um, I, I linked to it. It's, yeah, you link to It's Larry Rostant's. yeah. Cool, cool, yeah. cool. Very cool awesome
0: well friends thank you so much for joining us for this delightful romp into, into the, the mind and world of Mike Cole uh, <laughs> I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did and if you did uh, feel free to ride that, that good vibe and feeling straight out to iTunes and uh, give us a rating out there or a review and again as always so much thanks to those of you who have that really helps us in our positioning because uh, I was foolish enough to name this thing a podcast that has 50,000 other people named Round table <laughs> so every every review helps boost us just a little bit there um you can also uh, uh leave a comment out on the post out on the website www.roundtablepodcast.com we're on twitter at writers podcast uh and you can always send us a line at the table at roundtablepodcast.com uh now friends, don't put your don't put your elbows on it though God no what, what, yes because we have to clean that up afterwards cuz we have people coming in we rent <laughs> we rent this space out dude so clean up after yourself <laughs> now now As much fun as this has been, friends, you can only imagine the delight it's going to be when we get Mike back uh, and we actually workshop a story. Uh, And oh, what a story we have for you. It is delicious. Uh, And I'm going to leave you with that tease for a couple of days while you ponder what awesomeness awaits. Uh, uh, But in that time, Brian, what what might they do to to fritter away those hours between now and then?
1: Go right. Go right, yes. Hoorah. Hoorah.
0: And friends, I will tell you, as I always do, you find what you're looking for. So look for awesome. Look for wow. And I promise you, you will find it. We will see you in just a couple of days. Do come back and join us. Until then, you guys, be cool. Stay frosty. Stay awesome. We will talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. This episode is copyright 2013 by The Roundtable Podcast and is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Share Alike License. That means don't sell it, but you can share it all you like, and you can even use pieces of it in your own derivative work, as long as you attribute us as the source and release the work under the same licensing terms. Theme music composed and performed by the talented Hepcats of BroTown, Gary Gold, David LaBroyer, Billy Nobel, and Matt O'Donnell. If you'd like to be a guest writer or guest host or learn more about The Roundtable Podcast, please visit our website at www.roundtablepodcast.com or visit our Facebook page at facebook.com slash roundtablepodcast. Our Twitter tag is at writerspodcast or you can send us an email at thetable at roundtablepodcast.com. Thanks for listening.